Welcome to Unfolding Words. I'm your host, Antracia, and this week I want to share a quick thought about who is setting the standard for your life. Today in society, we have so many voices telling us how to live, what's right and what's wrong, and much of it is opposed to what the Bible mandates as right or wrong. And this is nothing new. This this goes back to the Old Testament where good was seen as bad and bad was seen as good. And there's so many things going on in society. They're trying to take gender off of birth certificates because they're saying that it is imposing something on a child that God didn't intend or is wrong. And I recently read an article where they're trying to change the term breastfeeding to chest feeding to be more gender inclusive. And you can look around and feel like you're in sort of a twilight zone with all that's going on. So I want to take a look at the scriptures today and look at this issue of how good is named as bad and vice versa. So we're going to be in Isaiah chapter five. I'm going to start at verses 20 and 21. And it says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness and who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. It's the world that says that evil is good and good is evil. And sin is the thing that causes moral confusion. It's the inability to be able to discern good from evil. So rejecting God's standard will lead to a dependence on personal standards, where the sinner's values are reflected in society. And whoever says what's right is right is based on what your opinion is, but not on any set standard. So today there's this switching of labels and word games in our culture concerning issues like fornication and adultery, homosexuality, and even life and death issues like abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia. All of these things The scripture has a very clear set standard on, but society will tell us the opposite of what the word of God tells us. The world says gender is a social construct. Masculinity isn't real. And I heard this or read this on social media recently that gender is nothing more than what society wants to put on you, a label they want to put on you, that masculinity isn't a real thing, that marriage can be defined as whatever the world deems good and right. But we know that God says otherwise. We have to start with the word of God. In Genesis 1 and 27, we read that God created man with distinct differences in the sexes. The scripture says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created man or humankind, male and female, Adam and Eve. And he made males and females different physically and distinct in their roles. Genesis 2 and 18 makes Eve's role 
clear. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Eve was from the bone and flesh of Adam, meaning she's equal in her standing before God, yet distinct from man. If God's creation of Eve, a female, as a helper and a companion for Adam, a male, is not clear enough to defend marriage as being an institution reserved for a man and a woman, then Genesis 2 and 24 clears up any confusion. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. From the very beginning of God's word, he makes no allowances for alternative lifestyles such as homosexuality, bestiality, polygamy, and so on. And people will point to the scriptures and say, well, polygamy is right there. But the word of God is often descriptive in its including polygamy in the in the storyline. Polygamy is what mankind did. It's describing what mankind got themselves into. It's not prescriptive, meaning this is what God ordains for mankind. And when you look at every instance of polygamy in the scriptures, it's always included with chaos, confusion, and hurt, which was not God's design for our relationships. And gender theory argues that men and women are different only on the physical level. In other words, they have the exact same capacities for everything except reproductive functions like childbearing. Though there is an attempt to make it possible for men to carry unborn children. And and gender theory also says that any distinctions between male and female, such as men acting as heads of their households or dressing in ways that are socially appropriate to one's gender, are constructs that society forces them to live by. And if they transgress, gender theorists love that word, <laughs> if they transgress from these social boundaries, the the gender theorist argues that they're ostracized and punished. And a lot of these gender theorists will even go on to say that a person may be a man on the physical level, but if he feels like he's actually a female, then he may identify as a female. And I think they call it gender dysphoria. So he should be able to live as his chosen gender even down to using the women's restroom and just dressing in women's clothing and being referred to as she or her. So the natural outworking of all of this gender confusion is a complete distortion of what the Bible says about the roles of men and women about marriage. If there is nothing that requires a man to identify as male or a woman to identify as female, why should we maintain a rigid definition of marriage? Marriage between a man and a woman only matters if the definition of man and woman matter. If two men get married, but one identifies as a female, society has simply tried to find a way around God's design for marriage by making male and female meaningless words. But There's a strong scientific evidence that the difference between men and women runs deeper than our basic anatomy. 
Dr. Greg Johnson, who's the professor of biology at Bethel University, wrote a detailed article on gender differences. He explained that males, among other things, are often more dominating, more goal and rule oriented, and have bodies and nervous systems that are built for long hours of physical toil. Women, on the other hand, have more caregiving behaviors, are more in touch with social dynamics, and have bodies that favor fat storage, which helps with pregnancy. And Dr. Johnson also said that sex differences present in all the organ systems across various mammalian species go far beyond the superficial anatomical characteristics necessary for reproduction. These differences are direct responses to the levels of circulating hormones, which differ significantly between the sexes. So there are home hormones and a DNA blueprint that certain embryonic tissues form in either male or female structures and other tissues. And at puberty, these increasing amounts of testosterone and estrogen prompt maturation of our sexual differences. It's it's society. It's built into our bodies. But society tells us, so what? It doesn't matter what science says. All that matters is how I feel. If I feel that I'm a woman, then I can live as a woman. If I identify as a man, then I can identify and live my life as a man, even though I was born a woman. So if you're born a man, There's really no way to truly change that, even if you get an operation to change that. Your design, the imprint inside of you says what you are. And this is consistent with Genesis 1 and 27. God made us male and female. Psalms 139, 13 and 14 explains that our biological development is marked by the hand of God. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And to say that you are not what you were made is simply a slap in the face of your creator. So in light of this passage, we should desire to embrace our role as a biblical man or woman, instead of trying to change ourselves into the opposite of what God intended. And I want to read a quote from this book, Let Me Be a Woman by Elizabeth Elliot. You know me, you know I love (laughs) Elizabeth Elliot, those of you who have been listening for any length of time. And she wrote this book as a wedding gift for her daughter. And she covers this topic of masculinity and femininity in her book, And it's a chapter titled Masculine and Feminine. And she says, it was God who made us different and he did it on purpose. Recent scientific research is illuminating and has happened before. Corroborates ancient truth, which mankind has always recognized. God created male and female, the male to call forth, to lead, initiate and rule and the female to respond, follow, adapt, submit. Even if we held to a different theory of origin, the physical structure of the female would tell us that woman was made to receive, to bear, to be acted upon, to complement, to nourish. So our bodies dictate who we are, how God designed us. 
And she says something else. This is probably one of my most favorite quotes in this book um, from the chapter, The Soul is Feminine. She says, Psalm 144, verse 12 says, May our daughters be like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace, pillars uphold and support. According as a pillar is cut and shaped to fit into a particular place and carry a specified weight, it is by that cutting and shaping differentiated and limited. It is a very differentiation and limitation that the pillar has to offer. So with us, we've been cut to a certain size and shape to fulfill a certain function. It is this, not that. It is a woman's offering, not a man's, that we have to give. So when we want to live in opposition to the design that God has imprinted on us, then we're, then we're saying that we want to live in opposition to God. We are acting and living as the enemies of God if we don't accept the word of truth that is a reality in our bodies and that's a reality in the scriptures. So in the book of Isaiah, there are two woes in verses 18 and 19 that show the themes of sin pursued and sin justified. And they sort of form the heart of Isaiah's description of the crop of stink fruit, the place that people give to morality and God and how they define moral authority. These verses read, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. So Isaiah paints this picture of people who are connected to sin, like animals who are harnessed to carts. And they are voluntary actors of a sinful lifestyle, but they are living like animals. They're living this this kind of animalistic existence underneath their true dignity as humans. They are victims of this deceit of sin. They are involved in this increasing bondage as the movement from cords to rope indicates. So this sin stresses the inward reality of sin in the human nature that leads to specific ways where sin is actually being committed and lived out. And then there is this natural progression, a devotion to sinfulness that leads to a spiritual arrogance that refuses to trust in God and always demands proof from him. So when you're in this place, you're unable to grasp what the Lord is doing. You refuse to be patient in faith. You don't want to wait on God's timing. Like the scripture says, let God hurry. And until God acts to these people's sinful ways and to their satisfaction, they're going to hold on to their unbelief. They're only determined to know what they see. And this is a challenge to Isaiah's assertion of the divine promises and his call to a position of trust where we're patiently waiting until the Lord proves 
the goodness of his word. So the moral code has been rewritten, we see in Isaiah. People no longer feel guilty when they stray from what was once considered right. Just as one man's meat is another man's poison, so now personal taste rules supreme. So if a way of acting seems bitter or sweet to someone, then that's what it is. Everything boils down to an individual's opinion, and that's where the problem lies. The rest of the chapter pertains to Judah's guilt and judgment as it describes the vineyard's bitter fruit or this stink fruit, as I mentioned earlier. The marks of a corrupt society are noted in the language. Destruction is declared against the greedy and the self-indulgent who give no thought to the Lord, the arrogant and the haughty and those who mock and taunt the Holy One of Israel. Those who pervert language to their own advantage, which we see in our own age today, the self-deceived, those who abuse alcohol and those who promote injustice. Those are all the marks of a corrupt society. And this all describes the social, moral and spiritual sinfulness of the people, people who are blinded by their own sins. The people of Judah were spiraling downward quickly and they were oblivious to the judgment that was waiting for them. And so they used Isaiah's special name for God, the Holy One of Israel. And they also played word games, just like today. I mentioned they people pervert language when they switch labels on what is good and what is bad. The Holy One of Israel is the one who decides what is right and wrong not blind and rebellious sinners. So in the midst of all this, God asks the question, who will console you? Who will comfort you? This is in chapter 51 of Isaiah. Verse number 18 says, there is none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction famine and sword, who will comfort you? Since Jerusalem was receiving the consequence for her sins, there was nothing anyone could do to help alleviate the pain she was experiencing at that time. The nation of Israel had to endure that pain until it was complete, and then God would comfort her. And the reason why some of Jerusalem's inhabitants could not comfort her was because many of them were overcome. They were dazed. They had fainted in the streets throughout the city. Scripture says, your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope and a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. So being powerless, they would lie in the streets to await their inevitable fate, just like a helpless antelope caught in a trap or a net. They had no hope because God poured out the fullness of his wrath on them. And those who foolishly ignored God's holy standard were now realizing just how fearful it is to fall into the hand of God's wrath. Author George Orwell said this, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those that speak it. And the only way to know truth is to know God and his word.
So let us cling to God. Let us cling to his truth. Otherwise, society will have us going back and forth on this roller coaster, believing whatever we want to believe or whatever they tell us is right and wrong. And if we do that, it only leads to destruction. But the way of God leads to life and truth. So hold fast to that. So that's it for this episode of Unfolding Words. Until next week, may God's word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. God bless you.